Hi, One Goal community. It's Elaine Boyd, Pelotonia's Event and Volunteer Operations Coordinator. Since 2008, Pelotonia has raised over $236 million for innovative cancer research. And thanks to our partners, 100% of those funds have gone directly to research at the James at Ohio State. Together, we will see an end to cancer. To get involved in our one goal, visit pelotonia.org. That's pelotonia.org, or click on the link in the episode notes. This podcast is powered by Pelotonia. To learn more about our goal 10 cancer, visit pelotonia.org or see the link in the show notes. We're sitting on the couch and I, I told my roommate, Tom, I said, hey, I've got, uh, got a lump. It's been there for a while. I don't really know what to do about it. And I'll never forget, he looked at me and he said, what do you mean you don't know what to do about it? You got to go get it checked out. So I ended up going and, and getting seen by the doctor. This was Friday at about 1 p.m. My roommate Tom was still sitting outside, uh, outside of the, the nurse's office waiting for me. Um, and he, he examined me and he looked at me. I, I'll never forget the look in his eyes. He, his eyes widened and he looked at me and he said, do you mind if I go get my resident so she can see what this looks like? Welcome to One Goal, a podcast from Pelotonia. We're a community that's dedicated to funding life-saving cancer research through a three-day experience of cycling and volunteerism. I'm your host and Ride Community Manager, Jill Landino. Your journey with us to the finish line begins now. Through research, we will see an end to cancer. Thankfully, every single penny raised through our riders, virtual riders, and volunteers goes directly towards the solution. This is made possible by our major funding partners, the Elburns Foundation, Huntington, the American Electric Power Foundation, and Peggy and Richard Santuli. It's because of them, all of our partners, and this dedicated community that all of this is possible. Thank you. Joe Apgar serves as the Chief Operating Officer of Pelotonia. But in 2008, as a college student at Penn State, his mind suddenly shifted from class to cancer. And in less than 12 hours, he went from his dorm room to the surgery room. This whirlwind of events was just the start in his inspiring journey. In fact, his life has recently had another change of focus, but we'll start with Joe's first post-diagnosis phone call in this episode, Change of Plans. So I went to get an ultrasound within probably three hours. Oh, okay. Uh, And I drove myself there. So I had come out of the nurse's office. I told my roommate, Tom, I said, can't go to class. I got to go to over to the Mount Nittany Hospital. Uh, went and got my ultrasound. This woman came in, really nice old lady came in, and she said, uh, you need to take a phone call, uh, but we'll give you an office so you can have some privacy. So that's like probably the first time I thought, like, uh-oh, this isn't good. Uh, on the other line of the phone was a doctor. I just want to let you know. Uh, all the imaging, everything looks like you have testicular cancer, and we're going to schedule you for surgery tomorrow morning. I called my parents. My mom picked up the phone, um, and I said, and I, I sort of had a pattern of calling once a week, mm-hmm. uh, and still to this day, I call my parents every Monday night, and uh, and I don't generally call them outside of that time frame. And so I was calling on a Friday night when, you know, they knew I liked to go out and sort of be on the town frequently. And so you could tell she was curious as to why I was calling to begin with. I said, can you also put dad on the phone at the same time? I want to tell you both at the same time. And she knew, like, in an instant something was wrong. And uh, I said, you know, I 
I have cancer. Um, it's going to be fine. It, my parents still laugh at this, but I said, you don't need to come for the surgery. It's tomorrow morning. You could probably just come sometime next week and visit. A couple hours later, they showed up at the hospital. It was from that point on a complete sort of whirlwind 48 or 72 hours. So when you got off the phone with your parents and I'm guessing you got back in your car and you're, or well, no, cause you had to stay there. At, well, actually funny enough, uh, so Mount Nittany is not, uh, it's not a very busy hospital. And so the woman, she figured out I was off the phone and, and she came out and she said, we got to get you up into a room, uh, so you can uh, spend the night. And <laughs> I said, you know, I didn't pack anything to come here. I was planning on going out tonight and she said well you're not going out like you're you have surgery tomorrow at 7 a.m you're not going out I said I know but I said I've just heard stories and like you see in the movies yeah how nice it is to have a clean pair of underwear when you're in the hospital and she said like okay do you think you have a roommate that can bring it to you I said no I I want to go and I want to go get my own underwear and I want to tell my roommates what's going on and they'd let me. Really? She, she let me leave the hospital, and she later let me in a back door. And she said, you have to be back in one hour. And I lived probably a mile and a half from the hospital. So I was really close. So uh, I literally, like, packed up my things from the hospital. I got in my car in the parking lot. I paid, like, the dollar parking fee. I left. I went to my apartment, and I walked in, and my two roommates were there, uh, Zach and Tom. Uh, Tom was the nursing student who I used to go out with a lot. Uh, and Zach was our other roommate who uh, he didn't like to go out, and so he always sort of stayed in on the weekends. And um, they were both there, and Tom was waiting for me to, like, come back so we could go out. And I walked in, and I said, hey, guys, uh, we'll change plans tonight, but I got to go back to the hospital. You know, they said, I have cancer. And they were both like, holy cow. And just immediately sprung into action. They're both super reasonable people, so they were completely confused as to why the hospital let me leave in the first place. And I said I needed to come back to get underwear, and they thought that was a completely unreasonable answer. And um, they said, what are you doing? Like, get back to the hospital. So Tom ended up driving me back, and, uh, you know, pulled in sort of the port cashier area of the hospital, and he said, you you want us to come in? I said, not really. Like, they told me I'm just going to sleep and wake up in the morning and, and go. So he just dropped me off and sort of went on his way. And yeah. it was sort of a really weird experience, although I think if I've learned anything sort of over the last 11 years is that everyone's experience is kind of weird and kind of unique. And um, But I went back in the side door of the hospital and that same woman let me in and took me to my room and uh, it sort of just got me situated. The surgery was quick. I want to say it took less than an hour. Uh, so it's really quick. And it was probably the first or second time in my life I had ever been uh, put under anesthesia too, which is, I think, kind of a weird experience to begin with and waking up from that. And... Um, so they take you to a you know a recovery room or whatever where you kind of wake up but you don't really wake up and they they eventually wheel you back in your your hospital room and um, 
I remember waking up sort of in my hospital room. And it was the first time I recall waking up. And uh, my parents, my two parents, uh, my sister, uh, my two roommates, Tom and Zach, and then my three other friends, uh, Josh, Corey, and David, were all sort of standing around. And it's like, just like in the movies, when you open your eyes and there's like just a bunch of people like standing around at the end of you. your bed. Yeah. yeah. Everyone's got like little stars and stuff uh, <laughs> and glows uh, floating around them. And um, no one knew what to say. Like, first time I had seen a lot of them, you know, since sort of the news. Obviously, that news just spreads through your friend group and your family really quickly. And I think I was out of the hospital within two or three days after that. I had already had a job lined up uh, to move to Columbus after school. And uh, I had one semester, and it wasn't going to be a full, you know, course load. I think I had 14 credits or something. And uh, so for all intents and purposes, it was going to be a pretty easy semester. Uh, and I had planned it that way. And uh, so I really didn't want to drop out of school. And so I decided uh, that I wanted to tell all my professors uh, and be really upfront about it. And I was still sort of going through the, the diagnosis and um, they're still waiting for the pathology. And so I knew there was probably three or four different routes of treatment that I would take uh, after that. And, you know, one of them wasn't going to take a lot of time away from school and some of them might have taken a lot of time away from school. And so I thought the best thing to do was to be really upfront with my professors and say, hey, look, I'm still recovering from this first surgery. There might be another surgery or chemo or radiation in the future. Uh, so I just want to be really upfront that I'm going to miss class and I could be missing even more class. And yeah. What were their reactions like? All my teachers were amazing. Um, super accommodating, you know, as is the case when you, when you share something personal. Uh, a lot of them shared personal things. One of my uh, professors, I learned his son, had a brain tumor at a really young age and had sort of gone through similar processes and conversations. And um, so everybody was really, really fantastic. And so I think it was probably about a week or a week and a half later that I learned I had a a non-seminoma germ cell tumor, which is a a type of of tumor. Um, And that the preferred course of action would be to have uh, a really massive surgery, which was is called an RPLND, which uh, is a retroperitoneal lymph node dissection. And so that surgery can help to verify that it either has spread or it hasn't spread um, and then inform the next course of action. Or the other option is surveillance, uh, which is exactly like it sounds. You just go to the doctor every week, every two weeks, and you just keep a super close eye and so those were sort of my two, uh, my two options, and I had about uh, ten days to decide. It was really tough. It was sort of the first time in my life I was faced with like a really hard decision. Um, that's, all, that's a huge decision. A huge decision. It's so and, young, and and sort of weighing all of the pros and cons, and uh, taking sort of into account everything that's going on in your life—not just your health, but your friends and. I had plans after school to, to, to move to a new city and start working and um, just everything. And so I actually thought, you know, my parents would want to be really involved in that decision. And uh, they were really upfront with me 
like early on, as soon as we found out that I was choosing between those two things, that this was my decision and mine alone, they would support me no matter what. Uh, whatever that meant for them, it didn't matter. They were here to support me, and uh, which I think in the moment was like, whoa, this is this is a really big decision to make. Yeah. Reflecting back on it now is one of the best things I think they could have done. Uh, that was like the first time I felt in control. Uh, but at the end of the day, I decided I wanted to do the surgery. Um, I wanted to – I just wanted to have that certainty. And yeah. uh, so we scheduled it. Uh, I like got out my calendar, not like I was doing anything else at that time. But I got out my calendar and he said, how is uh, February 18th sound? And I said, well, that's my 22nd birthday, so – uh, it doesn't sound good, actually. Uh, can, <laughs> Any other day. <laughs> yeah, can you, like, move that? And he's like, well, what do you have in mind? And I said, well, look, I like to go out to the bars and, and have a good time, and I'd like to do that on my birthday. So however you can make that happen, if I need a couple days to sort of, uh, you know, detox myself before <laughs> the surgery, like, let's let's make yeah. that happen. Had the surgery, I... I used to know how long I was in, in surgery. I don't anymore. I, but I think it was, you know, six-ish hours. Um, and so I, I came out of that surgery. I remember being in the, uh, the room, after the recovery room, and uh, being in just a ton of pain, but not, not sort of pain in the way you think it. Like, I was still on painkillers and, and, and all the stuff, whatever they had given me. Uh, during the surgery, but I knew that when that wore off, I was going to be in a just world of hurt because um, I could just tell like my body was tired and exhausted from the surgery and I was all bandaged up and like, I'm going to be at this for a little while. Yeah. So I, I actually ended up recovering surgically really well and I got sent home, I think, four or five days later. Um, and sort of in my head I had penciled in that that was the bottom of it like that's as worse as it's gonna get um it's only up from here so like every day one step at a time sort of everyone always tells you just take one day at a time it's totally true um like if you can make today better than yesterday and you have the optimism to think that tomorrow is going to be better than today it it really gets you gets you through a lot of things and I think it was my second or third night home uh, we got the pathology uh, results, they called and said that the cancer had not spread, uh, that I did not need chemo or radiation or any other surgeries. Uh, I had a, a pretty decent recovery timeline, but for you know all intents and purposes, I was in a pretty good position and luckier than a lot of other people with my diagnosis. And I was really excited about yeah. that and um, really just felt a lot of energy and that I could move forward and I could start to go to classes again and all that stuff. And, and then I called my parents the next morning and said, who were there staying at the Hilton garden Inn down, down the street. And I said, Hey, I didn't sleep very well last night. Um, can I come to the hotel? Cause it'll be quiet. And that way I don't have to bother my roommates. And I just like to try to sleep during the day and just turn, turn the lights off and put the shades out and, um, and it wasn't getting any better and, and it, the pain started to get worse. 
Uh, and about 5 p.m. that next day, I actually thought I was having a heart attack. Uh, and my parents had been sitting in the lobby the entire day uh, just letting me sleep. And I didn't sleep that well, but I was getting some sleep. And But I woke up and I just thought, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm having a heart attack. I got to got to tell my mom. So I, I got my mom. She called the doctor. The doctor said, get to the ER right now. And probably an hour later, I was at the ER and the pain was twice as bad. And I felt like I was breathing through a straw um, and sort of had been in so much pain and out of breath for long enough that I was starting to get a little just lightheaded and delusional and um, and so they started giving me some painkillers, and I started to feel better, And but my, my breathing wasn't regulated. And I remember the doctor came in, and he asked my parents to come out in the hallway. And this is the doctor that did your surgery? This was not—no, this was just the ER doctor okay. on staff um, that night. And, and he—I learned this later that he—what uh, he told my parents was that they didn't have the capabilities to take care of me in that hospital— and they weren't sure if they could save my life. I wanted to lifelike me in a helicopter to a, a hospital in East Pennsylvania called Geisinger. Um, but as typical in February in Pennsylvania, there's a really bad snowstorm. And so they had to use an ambulance. They wouldn't let the helicopters fly. And so they put me in the back of an ambulance for a three-hour ambulance ride. Uh, and my mom sat in the front, and the thing... I just remember, like, looking, because you're looking out the back window, and it was Highway you know, I-80 uh, during a snowstorm, just bouncing up and down, because I feel like all ambulances must just have terrible suspension systems. <laughs> um, but with every bounce, it was pain and yeah. all the stuff. And But after about a week in Geisinger, I got sort of all situated and was feeling really good and... Um, you know, I remember uh, some of my friends and, and roommates actually drove out uh, just to bring my parents breakfast and coffee and sort of hang out and see how they were doing. And um, the, about a week later, I ended up going back to back to my apartment on campus and um, sort of really had to level set of like, okay, am I staying in school? Do I feel like I'm in a good spot now? I felt like I was in a good spot a week and a half ago, but do I feel like I'm in a good spot? And ultimately decided that I wasn't going to drop out um, or pause that semester um, and that I would work something out with all of my teachers and, and sort of manage through. And that ended up being the low point. Um, yeah. I, I started to get better pretty quickly uh, from there. And, um, you know, I think the advice I give to anyone that uh, – has surgery or, or is in the hospital, they always tell you to, to walk uh, in a hospital. And it, it seems like a really silly sort of thing to do. But uh, I think I think that surgery uh, ended up causing the blood clot that I had in my lungs. And, and that's what was making you so uncomfortable. That's what was making me so uncomfortable is this blood clot. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, I had a, a bilateral blood clot. So it was a, a blood clot between my the artery between my two lungs. Um, and I think had I walked and tried to push myself to be a little more active during my initial couple days out of that surgery, it, 
I might have been in a different spot. And I know you even had some complications after that. And so once we got that figured out, I have not had a whole lot of issues related to the cancer uh, since. But, um, yeah, it's – I think anything sort of cancer or, or other uh, meaningful medical diagnosis, just it takes a lot of time for – your body and your mind to get back to normal and and feeling like you're truly past it. But eventually you were able to move to Columbus, get a job here, settle down, create a life. When was the first time you saw anything about Pelotonia? The first time I saw it was on the cap. uh, So like near Hyde Park and Bar 11 and stuff. In the short north, yeah. In the short north, there are big green arrows in the window. And I thought like, "Hmm, what is that? Um, And looked into it and realized it was this, uh, this bike ride and, uh, Really wanted to do it in 2010. I couldn't. I was on uh, blood thinners and medication that just didn't make it safe for me to ride a bike. And um, But a guy at, at our office, uh, his name's Rob, participated, and he had gone down. I think he did the 180 to Athens and back and just talked about how such a good experience it was. And so the following year, we uh, decided to get a corporate team together. Uh, and we put 15 people together. Our CEO got really behind it. And uh, we had a team and we raised, I think, $30,000, the 15 of us, and um, had just an absolutely incredible experience. And for me, you know, I thought it would be just a really personal and emotional thing, but I didn't really know what to expect. And uh, what it ended up turning out, you know, for me was... It was sort of a this weekend to celebrate not just me but also my sister, yeah, uh, who had survived cancer many years before I did, and um, it was sort of the first time that you could talk publicly about it and to solicit donations from friends. And so I, w- I would write these really long emails to, to friends and family and uh, people I'd worked with in the past to to try to raise two thousand dollars, twenty five hundred dollars to do this ride, and in it I was telling people why it was so important to me and that I had my own personal story and uh, that my sister had this story and our family were so committed to this. And uh, it it really just made me realize how special something like that can be as an outlet. Um, to, you know, it's emotional and it, it turned out to be one of the best experiences of my life. I never really put my effort towards getting a job at Pelotonia. I, I just put my effort towards doing as much as I could for the organization itself. And uh, when uh, Doug Ullman, our CEO, joined the organization, I we met uh, at an event and we started getting together socially and um, you know sort of developed a mentor relationship with him. And uh, I admired him. Um, you know, for what he had done at Livestrong and that he was the CEO of Pelotonia, but more so um, sort of his willingness to share his own personal cancer journey and watching the impact that had on other people, I started to realize that me sharing my own story and um, just connecting with with people and sort of embracing the idea that you're a cancer survivor and that other people might be inspired by that – and so we we developed a really good relationship and a a role uh, opened up at Pelotonia where they needed someone that could sort of come in and and 
help manage a lot of new projects and new ideas and um, work with a lot of different people and which was a lot of the work I had been doing at Rockbridge and and so it fit my skill set really well and uh, so I joined the Pelotoni team officially in uh, in June of 2016 so it's been it's been a while now so during sort of the two surgeries and the blood clot in my lungs and being on different medication and recovering, uh, I had uh, had a call at some point where I had taken a, a fertility test and it came back that uh, I was infertile. I wouldn't be able to have biological kids. And, you know, I was 22 at the time and that was the last thing that was on my mind. And uh, I remember getting the call. Um, I'd probably still remember the sound of the woman's voice. Uh, if she called me on the phone again. But even though that part sticks so vividly in my memory, I, I also remember not necessarily like caring or worrying about, oh, like that's like something for the next phase of my yeah, life. Just like wasn't. I'm in. So I sort of brushed it off. And um, and then I, I realized sort of throughout time, uh, through a lot of really introspective thought, like that was something that really bothered me. I sort of just filed it in the back of my mind, like, oh, I'll deal with that uh, when it comes to it. And um, so I'd lived in Columbus for uh, about a year and a half and uh, had gone on dates and, you know, just sort of having fun and um, ended up meeting uh, a woman, young woman. Her name was Jill uh, at a Halloween party in 2009. Uh, and then I asked her out on a date uh, after we met at the party and. I remember going into the date thinking I should be really just upfront with this this person about like my experiences and that I had cancer and like yeah. what if it turns out that we really like each other and then in like two years I say, oh, by the way, I can't have kids biologically and if that's a deal breaker for her, that would be a giant waste of everyone's time. Uh, so – uh, on the first date, probably before we even got appetizers, she had learned that I was a testicular cancer survivor, that I couldn't have kids, that I was really excited to be in Columbus and like all of these things. And she must have been thinking like, dude, pump the brakes, dude. Like, um, That's a lot to share It's with a lot somebody. in the first yeah. date. I would not recommend it to anyone. <laughs> Uh, to share that much, but on the you first wanted date. to get it all out of the table. And what was her reaction? She was like cool as a cucumber. Uh, her father had had cancer, so she tangentially knew sort of what that entailed. And we uh, we've been married for almost six years, and um, uh, we took a great, amazing course at Nationwide Children's Hospital called Adoption Academy, which was like $75 and was the best $75 I've ever spent because uh, it's an eight-week course and they teach you everything, pros and cons, uh, the good and bad, ugly, what to watch out for, things you'd never think of. Um, and so that was a really good experience. And then we invited people over to our house for dinner uh, that people had set us up with other people that had adopted. And we just took every chance we could to, to learn. And uh, we ended up picking – an agency, uh, an adoption agency locally here in Columbus and, um, you know, got our home study done and we were a little slow with our paperwork, but we got everything finished and wrapped up in June of 
2018. And so we were sort of technically home study approved and we could uh, – we were able to adopt a, a child and, and we had decided we were going to adopt an infant, a newborn infant uh, from the United States and that we wanted an open adoption, which meant we would have contact and a relationship with the birth mother. Um, so you do that and you go through all this sort of emotional anxiety and then your home study is approved and then you sit and wait. In November, uh, we learned that we had been matched with, uh, with a young woman and it sort of came about in a really crazy happenstance. My old roommate from Columbus, the first roommate I had in Columbus, uh, his brother-in-law is, a, is an OB and had a, a woman come into his practice, um, perfectly healthy, uh, amazing young woman, and she was looking for a family. And, uh, and so my old roommate played matchmaker. And uh, four weeks later, you know, we uh, had the chance to meet uh, uh, Cora's birth mother and grandmother the morning of our Czech celebration, actually, uh, in 2018. And um, we hit it off. They're absolutely amazing, amazing people. And we spent basically from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. at this doctor's office meeting her and just sharing stories and learning about each other. And then I had to go to the office and, like, get ready for the Czech celebration and act like nothing was going on because we hadn't had a chance to tell our family and yeah. um, or anything. And so uh, my parents actually came to town for the Czech celebration and in the following night, that Friday, uh, we, we told them, you're going to be grandparents. Fast forward just a couple weeks, four weeks, less than four weeks. Cora was Four born. weeks. Yeah. And that's, I mean, in the adoption world, things happen quickly, but that was, that was very quick. quick. Yeah, that was really quick. Um, she is uh, a healthy, happy, uh, she's a very happy baby. Um, and we feel, you know, just very grateful and honored that we were chosen to be her parents. And it's been a blessing. It's been the best experience of my life. What does it mean to have Cora, knowing that you've been through so much to get to this point? I think about it a lot. Like, you know, I would, you know, I'd never want anything bad to happen to Jill or Cora. Um, and so I I think there's just this, you know, paternal sense in you. And, um, and then, I, you know, I think about the progress that has been made in the last 20 years in cancer research generally. Um, and we've, you know, we've come so, so far. And, you know, I think the ultimate question is, if, if you're participating in something like Pelotonia's, do you believe in 20 years it's going to be noticeably better than it is today? And I think, I don't, I don't even think we have the capacity to imagine how much better it's going to be in 20 years. Uh, and it's, Things like Pelotonia, it's it's people that sort of mobilize and raise money and are raising the awareness uh, that are going to create this massive impact on the world. And um, so I think about 20-year-old Cora not having to deal with 
these types of things, and that they're going to be uh, they're going to be facing and challenging and and working on a new problem and fixing a new problem for the next generation, and that's really exciting to me. So I, along with my colleagues at Pelotonia, have the tremendous privilege of working alongside Joe every day. Uh, he is in, an incredible colleague, uh, collaborator, and just terrific person um, to spend time around, which anybody who knows him would also say the same thing. So we're incredibly grateful to have Joe on the team um, and also that he wanted to share his personal story with us that will hopefully motivate and resonate with so many people out there. We want to say thank you to our major funding partners for making this podcast and everything we do in the Pelotonia world possible. So thanks to the Alberance Foundation, Huntington, the American Electric Power Foundation, and Richard and Peggy Santulli. The Pelotonia community is remarkable and innovative in ways that we never could have possibly imagined. So at the end of each podcast, we're excited to highlight a few of the stories that we hear that our community is using uh, for fundraising, for recruitment, really great ways that they're engaging their friends and families. So my colleague, Olivia Rositz, who is our ride community coordinator, is here to talk to us about a really special event that started a number of years ago that some little people in our community have really spearheaded. So Olivia, share more with us about uh, our, one of our kids' rides in the community. Every year we hear from passionate children in the area who are really excited to get involved in Pelotonia, but they're not 14 yet, so they can't get out there and physically ride in Ride Weekend. So this has led to a, a kids' ride uh, hosted in Bexley called Pedal for Pancakes. I mean, who doesn't want to pedal for pancakes? But it gets these kids out there uh, to ride. It can be, there's an under six group. There's an over six group. And it's just really engaging children who are passionate about getting out there and being healthy and learning about how to raise money for cancer research. They see their parents going out every year, being a part of Pelotonia, and they want to get involved. So this is their way to get involved. And it's such a great idea because the city of Bexley, which is located in Columbus, they've had a team, Team Bexley, all 11 years of Pelotonia. They're one of our highest raising community teams. So it's just a really fun idea that they came up with that kind of reinvents the way that their community is raising funds. And in 2019, they had a record number of kids show up. It was a beautiful morning uh, and they raised an incredible amount. Yeah, $7,500 by kids. By kids. Just having fun, having lemonade stands. They're all out there uh, cheering one goal, one goal in the mornings. It's uh, To me, it's just the, the best possible way that we can kind of pass on our community's love for fundraising to the next generation. Absolutely. And there's even other examples. I mean, you hinted at lemonade stands, um, kiddos that get involved and creative in making uh, fidget spinners. We have the Fitzpatrick family that goes all out with that every year, as well as um, one of our staff members' daughter gets involved by making bracelets to help support her mom's fundraising. Yes, that's little Reagan Olsavsky, and she's got her work cut out for her, I think, for a number of years, making some really cool bracelets uh, for fundraising. So start them young, guys. Start them young. Yeah. Get your kids involved. Those those cute little faces. You can't really say no to them when it's they're difficult. asking for a donation, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much for sharing, Olivia. Uh, please stay tuned for a preview of our next episode. But I remember when he told me I was sitting on my floor and Jeremy and I are the same where a lot of our life we've spent time taking care of each other and we don't like it to be returned to us. Um, and I told him right then and there, right when he said it, I said, Jeremy, you're going to have to let people love you a lot. (laughs) 
So I assume that you were a great resource for him as he was going through. Yeah, I was I was the cancer coach. You were the cancer coach. I was the cancer Is coach. Is that what you named yourself? Yeah, <laughs> non-official just now. You've been listening to One Goal, a podcast from Pelotonia, hosted by me, Ride Community Manager Jill Andino, with interview production and scheduling by Marketing Communications Manager Emily Smith. Produced, mixed, and sound designed at the studios of Westler Media by Vince Tornero. Additional mastering by Joey Gerwin at Orin Judio. Special thank you to all of our guests for being so open and willing to share their stories. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast, as that will help others hear these empowering stories. If you're curious about joining the Peloton community and making an impact on cancer research, please see the link in the episode notes or visit pelotonia.org. That's pelotonia.org.